You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 14, that's what Linus just recited for you. I love this clip, right? I love this whole special, whole Christmas special. It's uh, been a part of my family tradition watching it at Christmas time for as long as I can remember. In fact, we've, we've instituted new traditions uh, as I've started a family. We watch this on Friday as a family. Uh, Christmas films. I love them. I love this time of year. I love being reminded of the birth of Jesus. I've had this soundtrack on for weeks, playing in the background pretty much since Thanksgiving. I started on, on repeat. As I, as I read, as I study, as I think, it's, it's excellent. If you don't know the soundtrack, you don't know what you're missing. If you've never seen this, this film, you need to come to my house and watch it. It's excellent. You know, each year, Linus gets a chance to preach the gospel to thousands, hundreds, maybe millions at this point of people, right? Broadcast originally on TV, now it streams on services. It's only on Apple TV Plus if you're looking for it this year. That's the only place you can find it. So, like I said, find a DVD copy if you need it. Uh, Christmas movies, right? It's a, it's a whole thing. There's a lot of these. There's, it's a whole genre. There's subgenres, right? We have, we have classics like White Christmas and uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And we have uh, new classics like Elf and Die Hard, right? And there's like the Rankin-Bass ones, the Claymation, Stop Motion, whatever they're really called, like Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Little Drummer Boy. Uh, and you got the animations like The Grinch and Frosty. And then there's Hallmark movies, which is like its whole other thing. You know, I'm not really into that, but some of you are, and that's cool. Movies, right? Culturally, we're all about this season. We're all about it in so many ways. We've put so much time in, into uh, celebrating and, and building up the hype for this time of year. Right? Uh, culturally, we pivot around this time. Like, classes, they're going to wrap up here soon, and, and break will begin, right? And it'll provide space for you to go and be with your family during this time of year to celebrate. Right? It's a, it's a huge travel holiday. Airline fees are through the roof if you want to travel at this time. But it's important for us to get home to be with our loved ones to celebrate. Each year, society pauses and stops at this time of year. Literally stops. We go on break. Even... Even individuals who aren't religious, who aren't celebrating Christmas, are forced to stop, right? They're sent home from campus, dorms close, stores close, work is off, uh, stores are shut down. It's hard to get anything done, but be at home and be with family, be with your loved ones. Right? Just even think about like decorations, they're all around us, right? You drive through campus right now and frat houses have Christmas decorations up, right? Christmas lights. Starbucks has cups commemorating the time. They have special holiday drinks to mark the occasion. Uh, there's, there's carols on, uh, uh, on radio stations playing through Meyer as I do my groceries. I can get, I hear Christmas carols, right? As, you, as you're at Jimmy John's, you hear them. It's everywhere. Christmas has invaded our culture. It needs to. All right, that's a little bit better. I won't be self-conscious every time it pops, and I'm wondering why I did that. Um, Out here earlier, as you were gathering, maybe you heard it, we had uh, Andy Williams. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right, this song, and you're lucky I didn't try to sing it. Uh, It is the most wonderful time of the year, right? There's a reason we pause and give space at this time of year. 
Because the birth of a child changed everything for society, changed everything in history. And that's why we pause. It's why the world pauses, why society, it may have forgotten why we're doing this. And it may have added all these other materialism and uh, other occasions. And Linus needs to remind us each year that there's a reason. There's still an echo of it in our, in our society, in our rhythm, in history. Christmas is the moment when God stepped into society, stepped into creation, took on flesh, and changed history forever. And that's why we stop. That's why we pause. That's why we celebrate Christmas. In fact, what I want us to see this morning is we look at a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of you. Linus just quoted it. He, he, he's, rec- he's quoted it over, or he's recited over countless TVs across the world. This morning, as we engage with the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel, I want us to see that the birth of Jesus is good news and it brings great joy to all people. Whether they know it or not, it brings great joy to all people. Jesus' birth is worth celebrating. And if you remember nothing else this morning, remember to stop and rejoice in the birth of Jesus because it's good news and great joy for all people. We're going to unpack that a bit because, you know, I got to, right? I'm a preacher. That's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so we're going to take a look at uh, chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. We're going to look at the first 21 verses. Uh, if, I hope you had a chance to look at that with your small group this week or, or you read it on your own. But I see this in, in four distinct sections, and that's how we're going to approach our passage, right? Four chunks, if you want to know the technical term. I went to seminary, and chunk is the technical term for how you study passages. So our first chunk It focuses on outside forces, is the way that I want to describe it. Governmental authority, moving people around, using their power for their own gain and agenda. Yet God, all along, is is using it for his purposes, for his gain, for his agenda. Let's Let's see what I mean by that. Let's read the first five verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So a government order has been issued, forcing all people to travel back to their hometowns to be counted. Joseph... He's, he's been residing in, in Nazareth in Galilee, and so he has to return home to Bethlehem in Judea. That's where he's from. And that's about a 90-mile journey. And there are no cars, there's no trains, there's no planes, no airlines to charge exorbitant fees. So they're walking, maybe on a donkey. It likely took four to seven days to cover that distance, depending on how slow they, or how fast they could go with a very pregnant Mary, right? This is a long, uncomfortable journey for these two. And we're not really sure how far along Mary is in her pregnancy, right? Because Luke doesn't really tell us how long they've been in Bethlehem before the birth comes. But, but we know she's far along in her pregnancy. We can, we can conclude that. And I know when, when Amy, my wife, was, was pregnant, in those, like, final, that final trimester, you're not really supposed to go very far from your house, right? Like, they're like, don't go more than, like, an hour or two because you might have to be back here to give a, have a baby, right? And uh, for whatever reason, though, Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius, they didn't get that memo, right? So they're making them travel weeks, you know, a week away. It'd be hard to get back and give birth at home. So away, Mary and Joseph, on an arduous journey, uncomfortable, pregnant, make the 90-mile trek to Bethlehem. 
And true to form, Luke, in uh, his writings, he gives us historic details to anchor this in history, right? He tells us this really happened, and these are the things surrounding it, right? You can see this elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, and it really helps us in dating when some of these happen. Like, we can pin down, we know the dates of certain things in Acts and uh, the Gospel of Luke because of that. It's a really, really helpful area of study. He tells us who the ruler of Rome was, who the governor of this region was, and it's helpful. It anchors it in history. Unfortunately, and some of you uncovered this in your study this week, uh, there's a little bit of controversy here because we don't actually have historic record of a census like this taking place during this time when Caesar Augustus reigned or when Quirinius was uh, governor of this area. We have one in AD 6, but that doesn't line up with the rest of the, the, uh, the, the record. Uh, that, now, it, that just because we don't have a historic record of these things happen doesn't mean they didn't occur, right? Like that it's, uh, it's led some biased critics of the text to conclude that Luke is uncredible and the story didn't happen, right? He's lying. There was no census is what they conclude, which I, I think just shows their bias. It, it reveals their heart and their bent against uh, the Bible being trustworthy. Luke is a historian at the time. He records it. He says this happened, right? How is he not credible? The fact that there is no record does not mean that this didn't happen, that the story is discredited, right? Just think about it. The vast majority of history, we have no written record of. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means somebody didn't write it down or we haven't found the record where they wrote it down, right? It doesn't mean Jesus wasn't born. And, and not to get too much in the weeds here, which many of you are probably already like, Nick, you're already in the weeds. Just get out, right? Uh, I, I, would, I would posit this. The, 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 probably the most plausible explanation here is that this wasn't actually a decree from Rome. It was actually probably a decree from Herod, who, being the Jewish ruler, wanted to pass off the blame onto Rome so that he could still save face and, and look good. But it's probably for his own material gain and better management and taxation of the people. But it's easier to pin it on Rome because then they look like the bad guys. And the most clear evidence for this is Rome would not have had Mary and Joseph go back to Bethlehem. There was no reason to go back to your hometown. Caesar just wanted to know where you were now so you could pay taxes to him there. That's all he cared about, right? Herod, Jewish uh, census, had you go back to your hometown because they wanted connection to your, your origin. Your, you know, those that had traveled out would come back and be counted as God's people. Anyways, so I digress. If you want to talk to me more about that, we can, we can do that later. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Whoever called the census, the matter is clear. It doesn't matter. Mary and Joseph have to travel. They're going back to Bethlehem, and it's a crucial time. It's a difficult time for them. Despite the governing power and authorities moving people around like pawns, God is using them on his greater chessboard to accomplish his purposes, right? Getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at the crucial time when he needs them there, when he wants them there to accomplish his purposes. The birth of the Messiah in the city of David, as foretold, just like we saw last week in Micah, 700 years prior, foretold that the Messiah would be born in the city of David. God in human flesh, in Mary's womb, moved 90 miles to be born in the city of David. God is in control. That's the point. God is ultimately in control, bringing about his purposes, even when it looks like he's absent, right? No government ruler, no, no government authority, no laws will stand in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. God is in control, right? And that is good news. That brings me comfort. 
No matter what we face, no matter what our authorities are over us, God's purposes will be accomplished. And that's what we see here in the beginning. God is in control. And we continue on our passage and see this next chunk, right? So far, uh, we saw, right, God is triumphant over government authorities. He's doing what he wants uh, to accomplish his purposes. Next, we're going to see that God will triumphant will be triumphant even over societal rejection or, or poverty or uh, things that set up, set up uh, adversity in our lives. And uh, we're picking back up, and we're just reading two verses here this time. And while they were there, Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So Mary and Joseph, they've made the journey. They're in Bethlehem. And we're not sure how long they were there, as I already alluded to, but eventually Mary goes into labor. It's time to have a baby, right? And and then in just one verse, one single verse, Luke sums up the simplicity of the setting, the most powerful scene depicted throughout history ever since. The scene depicting the nativity, right, is, is how we've come to call it. Mary and Joseph, Jesus laid in a manger, Presumably animals looking on, maybe the night sky, cold, shining down on them. See, I, I have a, a scene, the nativity is an important uh, way of, of reflecting and remembering, uh, remembering this in my life. And we have a scene in our front yard, right? Uh, it, it graces Christmas cards. I send that out often, uh, a picture of the nativity, or at least the silhouette. There's movies made about it. There's songs written about it, right? Silent Night. This image is so powerful, commemorates the birth of Jesus. And this, is, this is my front yard, and um, if you were here last week, you realized this was taken before hoodlums stole Snoopy and a tree, and somebody should find them and share Jesus with them. Uh, you can go back and listen to last week to hear the story of that briefly. <laughs> um, here, I, I, back on track. <laughs> Um, there, in Bethlehem, right? Backwaters, Bethlehem. Blue-collar Shepherdstown, Bethlehem. About five miles outside Jerusalem. Far from home, in poor lodgings, shared with animals. Jesus was born. The little town, overrun by census travelers, right? It had, had no additional space for this new arrival, this baby who'd just been born. So he was swaddled, wrapped in a blanket placed in a feeding trough, right? God in human flesh entered the world and no space was made for him. He's placed in a feeding trough. God in human flesh entered the world in such unassuming, such humble means, right? He didn't didn't come, you know, riding on a horse, uh, entering on a a grand throne carried by servants with pomp and circumstances, no. Rather, he's entered the world in a helpless babe and was laid in a manger, not even given his own bed. You see, I'm, I'm not anybody of great importance, right? I'm a pastor of a campus church. But when my children were born, when my children were born, we were in a climate-controlled uh, room at Carl Hospital. There were nurses and a midwife on hand taking care of Amy, my wife, There were millions of dollars of medical equipment at their disposal, at their fingertips. And when the child arrived, when we got to hold Nathan or Alyssa for the first time, we then wrapped them in in a swaddle 
placed them in their own cradle with medical equipment, and a nurse was dedicated to watch over and, and, and care for them, right? Jesus, the creator of the universe, God in human flesh, had none of this. Nothing. He resides in a borrowed bed, a makeshift bed, with his earthly parents and maybe some animals. It's humble beginnings. The point I want us to get here is that Jesus, the king of all creation, he was born in humble circumstances. Even his family, he's not even in his home, in his home right? His family's in temporary housing. He's put in a makeshift bed. By all metrics, we could call this rejection by society, right? Poverty, born without anything, doesn't even have his own bed, not even a place to sleep, a home to call his own. And against those odds, Jesus entered creation to accomplish his mission, to save us from our sins. Right? Despite the appearance, God was at work on mission to bring great joy to all people, restoring mankind to God once and for all. And that is good news. That is good news. No matter what, appear, what it appears on the outside, God is at work. God is at work bringing about his purposes you know, from an earthly standpoint, we may wonder, where is God? But he is at work bringing about his mission. Even today, he is orchestrating all things to bring about the return of Christ. And we await his, re his return. That's good news. It's worth celebrating. God is at work. We got some territory to cover. Let's move on to our next chunk, right? Our next chunk, it focuses on the birth of Jesus announced by the angels. This is what Linus recited, right? Luke 8, uh, 2, 8 through 14. You know, Linus has it memorized. Maybe it's a good practice for you. Memorize it here during finals. You know, be like Linus. What would Linus do, right? Or maybe don't be like Linus. People might question your sanity when you walk around with a blanket on campus. Or maybe not. Maybe that this is the time for it. Anyways, let's... Uh, Luke 2... <laughs> And in the same region, there were shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And some, some shepherds are out in a field doing what shepherds do, take care, taking care of their flock. And heaven breaks into reality. The angel of the Lord appears, and the shepherds are terrified, as we all would be, right? What is going on? The angel offers comfort, because it's clear that's what's needed first. And then he declares good news and great joy to all people, right? In the nearby city of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born. The Christ is here. The Lord of all is here. 
And, and if one angel speaking this wouldn't have convinced them, right? An army of angels arrives to proclaim peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest. Right? The angel declares this is good news and great joy to all people. How true that will turn out to be, right? Our lives are transformed. History is transformed because of this news. You see, the people, they awaited a ruler like David. We've talked about that. Saw that last week. The promised king, and he was here, finally here. But even, he's, he's going to be even more than just another earthly king, right? He's the savior of the world, they declare. His name tells us what he does. He's, God is salvation. He's the Lord, right? The Hebrew name of God. He is God in human flesh, they declare. He is Savior of the world. He's the Messiah, the awaited one. And he's God in human flesh. He's the Lord. This, this announcement, right? This is, this is rich with prophetic fulfillment. This whole passage is. The news, it's, it's a blessing to all people, right? And that, and that fulfills the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, that he would be, his descendant would be a blessing to all nations. Right? The child was born in the city of David, which fulfills the prophecy we saw last week in Micah. He's from the lineage of David, right? We, we heard Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because he's from David's line, as foretold by, second, uh, by God in 2 Samuel. He's born of a virgin, just as Isaiah told. You know, that's where Mary, it's been the case with Mary. Born of a woman to crush the head of the serpent, as foretold in Genesis, as sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. This is the Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah, and my preferred term. The anointed one, God's promised one. He is the king that carries on David's line. God's forever king that would save all people. He'd save God's people. It's, it's as if these, the angels, they're, they're, they're making it abundantly clear to the shepherds. They're heaping on all the titles, all of the imagery from the Old Testament, all of the prophecy, Right? This is why this child brings, is good news and brings great joy. All of these things that we've waited for. The angels had to make it clear. Because no one in their right mind was looking for the God of all creation to enter into the world in the little town of Bethlehem, in the back corner of the Roman Empire, in a poor town laying in a manger like a, as a helpless baby. Creator of the world in the lowliest of settings. Yet he receives the highest heavenly praise, the highest heavenly birth announcement, right? This trumps any postcard I've ever sent out, right? <laughs> praise be to God. Glory to God in the highest, they sing. Earth, peace on earth, good news, and great joy to all people. Jesus is born. The Savior is here, right? All that God's people had been waiting for had begun to arrive. God's plans are coming together. The Savior is here. That's good news. The long-awaited one had finally arrived. The one the patriarchs appointed, appointed to was here. The true, David, the, the true king in David's line, as promised. The one the prophets foresaw. The one that would crush the head of the serpent, ultimately. And is yet to come. The Savior was born. It's good news. And turning to our final uh, chunk. We're going to see the earthly reception, how the, how the shepherds and how Mary and Joseph respond, how this is good news for them. Let's read and see and see how we might do likewise. 
picking up in 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things up, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the angels have left the shepherds in the field. And they do what any sane human being visited by angels and told to go do something would do. They go, right? They go to Bethlehem to see the miraculous, what, it, what they've just been told and instructed. They find a baby laying in a manger just as they were told. And they go beyond that, though. Luke tells us they told everyone that would listen what they had just heard what they had just seen, who this child is, that he is the Savior, the, the Messiah, that he's the Lord. Luke tells us that, that Mary, she, she treasured these things in her heart and she thought over them, right? A typical motherly response as she faithfully raises and cherishes this, experience, cherishes this child, nurturing him to full maturity. We're told Mary and Joseph, they continue on with their faithfulness. They have him circumcised on the eighth day, which is custom. They give him the name Jesus as they were instructed, which means God is salvation, a name indicating the purpose that he, for why he's taken on flesh, why he has come. God will save. So there's two responses here, right? Two responses that we should look at. They're faith-filled responses. I think they're both worth emulating in our lives. First is the shepherds, right? Now, it's, it's not immediately clear to me or a lot of commentaries why God chose shepherds who are out tending their flock in the field, right? We don't know much about these shepherds. In fact, we don't even know how many there are, despite what your nativity scene might show you. We don't know how many shepherds. You know, maybe these, these shepherds were exceptionally devoted to God, right? Maybe they were very uh, religious, very pious. Maybe they're just the only ones that are available, right? They're out in the field. What else are they doing, right? Maybe it's because this is the profession God used to, as imagery for the coming Messiah in the Old Testament prophecy. We don't know. But whatever the reason, we do know that choosing shepherds at this time in Israel's history was an uphill battle. See, culturally, shepherds were disreputable. No one wanted them around, right? They couldn't give testimony in court, so they're, they're not trustworthy. We can't believe them. They're ceremonially unclean because they spend time out with sheep in a field and they don't, they're not doing all the religious practices, right? They're, uh, they're seen as untrustworthy because they spend all their time away from society. They're, they're moving around. They're not really engaged in part of the daily life. So we don't know if we can trust them. So the fact that God chooses shepherds, shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus and to begin telling others about Jesus, is fascinating. It's interesting to say the least. I find it fascinating. Yet they respond just as we would expect. 
Luke's description of how they respond, how, how the angel, after the angels leave, it's probably, if, if there was a modern translation, it would be like, let's go, right? Like, where's Michael? We need him to do that because that's, that's Michael's thing. There you go. Thanks. It's <laughs> like, how can I emulate Michael as best as possible if I were to translate this? Right? They're, they're amped up. They drop everything they're doing. With haste, Luke tells us, they go. There's excitement. They've been visited by angels and told that all that they've been waiting for has just arrived. The Messiah is here. And the excitement is so big that they tell everyone they can, everyone they can, they can who this is and what's just happened. Angels visited us and then we, we, we met the Messiah and he's here in a manger. Come see, right? You just, I, I get the sense that everyone in Bethlehem was woken up and told the baby was here, right? Everybody would have known shortly after their arrival. They obeyed and they were faithful. Right? Disreputable, untrustworthy shepherds became the first evangelists. Think about that. Think about that. Who, people didn't know if they could trust them, yet they're the ones that God chose to bring the message through. And it transformed the world. It transformed history. How much more can you and I, hopefully a little bit more respected and trustworthy in society, how much more can we become evangelists? How much more can we share Jesus with those around us? We have less of an uphill battle, maybe, I would suggest. Well, I said there were two responses. Let's look quickly. Let's look at Mary and Joseph as this, this the other response here. The earthly parents of Jesus, they respond. So far, they've been responding with faith and obedience. They've done all that the angel and dreams had instructed them to do all that God had led them to do. They realized that God is bringing about the miraculous, right? That Jesus would be born of a virgin and save the world. Yet they don't make much about themselves. They're obedient. They do as they're told, right? And uh, follow God's directions. And on, on the eighth day, as is custom, Jesus is circumcised, and then they give him his name just as they were told to do. You know, Mary and Joseph, they didn't get to pick a name. They didn't brainstorm. They didn't look at the top 10 names of the last 20 years and figure out what, uh, how that would be you know, nicknamed and how it worked with their last names. No, they, just, they gave him the name that he was given by the angel. Jesus. God saves. See, faithfulness, it marks both of these responses. Faithfulness to obey, right? Faithfulness to obey and go and see Faithfulness to obey and do as God instructed, bringing Jesus about. May we be people. May we be people who are faithful and obey, who are faithfully and go as God instructed and tell. Faithful and go and obey as God has, has instructed us. May we be people who, who reflect on our encounters with Jesus and cherish them in our heart as Mary did. May we be people who are faithful. Let's go and share the good news. Let's obey as the shepherds did. Let's obey as Mary and Joseph did. And so this morning, what I wanted us to see, what I hope I've made the argument for, is despite governmental interference, moving the family around at its, fi its critical final phase of pregnancy, despite lowly and crowded circumstances, the God of the universe took on flesh in the form of a baby. 
is wrapped in a swaddle and laid in a feeding trough. And despite that unassuming nature, despite his surroundings, heaven broken and declared all that God was doing, the magnitude of the event. Glory to God in the highest, the angels declare. The Savior of the world has been born in the city of David. The one foretold from David's line is now here. The king of all creation, the Lord of all is here, the bringer of peace. Good news, great joy, right? It's, it's good, that's the good news we celebrate at Christmas. That's why we pause. It's been good news for 2,000 years. It will continue to be good news until Jesus returns. As we await the return of Jesus, we can celebrate this good news and look forward to how much greater our joy will be as he returns. The significance of this child's birth has been felt throughout history. <clears throat> the news is so good, the joy is so great that history pivots around it, right? You've, if you've been around, you've heard me talk about this because I love this fact. Our secular society revolves around this time, right? We've already talked about that, right? We're pausing at Christmas time in the semester, in the academic year. Now think about it. We measure history up to the birth of Christ. And then after the birth of Christ, time pivots around the birth of Christ. When you write the year, you're celebrating the birth of Christ, knowingly or unknowingly. Right? Our, our yearly rhythms revolve around celebrating the birth of Jesus. Right? Think about when you finish your last final and you breathe that sigh of relief that the semester is over and you get to go home and celebrate. It's an echo of how much Jesus is the center of our, our lives, our, our society. Whether we know it or not, we pivot around it. Our secular world still pauses and gives space to remember the birth of Jesus and be filled with great joy because it's good news. Right? For one month a year, maybe a little longer if you start before Thanksgiving, uh, it's acceptable to have decorations displaying Jesus and wishing Merry Christmas and having lights up to commemorate this, this time. It's acceptable in society to hear songs about Jesus playing everywhere. No one gives, no one, no one cares, right? It's playing in Meyer. It's playing at Jimmy John's, right? It's playing at Starbucks, right? I love stopping. If you're drinking your coffee at Starbucks and you hear O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that shows you the power of Christ, how much he's changed society, right? It's an echo of his significance. It's an echo of why this is such good news for all people. The birth of Jesus is good news and brings great joy. I hope you feel that this season. I hope you feel that this Christmas. It truly is the most wonderful time of year. Because it's a chance for us to remember God entering creation, being born to be Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Can we pray with me?